Greetings, diversifiers, and welcome to the final episode of Season 3 of Diversify. It's been a hell of a year, hasn't it? This episode is a real doozy because our guest Rialina is not only a hilarious and brilliant comedian, she's also a virologist. She knows a lot about viruses. Fitting. We hope you enjoy the episode, and if you're new to the podcast, make sure you check out our previous episodes on whatever platform you got this one on. We have spoken to some incredible people over the years, and we'd really appreciate a listen. But for now, from me and Kate, we wish you a happy and healthy summer, and we'll see you on the flip side. And by see, we mean here, and by here, we mean you'll hear us, because that's how podcasts work. So without further ado, take it away with our theme tune, Fit and the Conniptions. I'm actually their drummer. Turn out the lights, open the curtains. Go and do useful things you I am Holly. I'm Kate. And welcome to Diversity. Divide, div, fuck, what's the name of the podcast? Welcome to Diversify. Uh, how are you, Kate? Are you okay, Holly? Uh, you know what? We're over a year into this pandemic, and I thought I was over having really annoying tech problems, but we've just spent 29 minutes trying to work clean feed, and it failed. Last time we spent 45 minutes and our guests couldn't get clean feed. So I just... I, I've never seen you flap so much in, in the entire time that I've known you. I'm fairly unflappable usually, um, but I just I just called it in. I was like, Kate, Kate, you make the decision. <laughs> Speaking of unflappable... Well, I was about to say, this particular guest, there's no way you can do a shit tangent, really. If you really think about it, where we are, a virus... I mean, it's I'm not saying our guest is a virus. Wow. <laughs> Handed you on a plate. I'm just wondering if you're going to take the bait. Uh, I'm not touching that one, Kate. <laughs> Speaking of people who are, am I saying this right, virologists? Yeah. Speaking of them, our next guest. Hello. Welcome. Who are you? Hi. Hi. I, well, I'm not a virus. You're quite right. I'm really Lena. I used to be a virologist. Once a virologist, always a virologist, though, am I right? Well, you know, given the frequency of pandemics, one could say it's always good to have that sort of knowledge in one's back pocket, just in case you do live to 100 plus years. This past year, was this one of the moments that like every virologist is like Avengers assemble? Everyone's like, oh my God, this is our moment to shine. It's kind of the other way around. I think that we've been going, you know, wait a minute, that wasn't the moment because for the past 20 years, we've had a lot of pandemic false starts. So we've been putting on our clothes, taking off our costumes. We've been assembling, we've been disassembling. We've just been like come on already we're ready so we we were expecting this to happen you know with the first SARS and then there was MERS and there's a couple of flus that came in so we've just been we're ready we're ready uh you know but not in a kind of not in an excited way I should clarify that not like we're all just going yeah pandemic time um not in all in that way but just in the kind of this is happening people this is going to happen soon and we all need to be ready and we're ready but are you ready that kind of way we're not yet at a scientific point where we can avoid pandemics. Maybe in the future we'll get to that point, but we're not there yet. But that's the wonder of viruses, is that viruses evolve at such a rate that no matter how far we get down the line, 
I'm willing to bet that they will keep pace with us in order to stay that one step ahead. That's kind of their role though. That is their role in nature, which is why I find them so fascinating. Is there any truth to, I, I, I read a thing, uh, that viruses themselves aren't the problem that they help us evolve, but actually it's sort of the side effects that they have that are the problem. Or is that just a BuzzFeed article that I read once? I feel like the idea that viruses are quite unquote a problem is quite a human-centric thing. We're the centre of the earth and everything that affects us is either a good or a bad thing rather than we're part of like this giant ecosystem and viruses are part of that. Yes, I feel very much that way. I think, Kate, going back to what you read, I think there's two ways that you can look at it. One is that, as you know, with this particular virus, some people can have an infection and be completely asymptomatic and not even know that they have it. And then you've got some people that end up quite severely ill in hospital uh, on ventilators and, and unfortunately some succumb to it. And what we do know is that that difference in reaction is our reaction to the virus, not the virus itself. It's not like one person got infected with a really mild virus and the other person got infected with a deadly one. It's the same virus that infected both, but it's how we react to that, how our immune systems respond to that, that determines the difference in how ill different people get. So that's one thing about it's not necessarily the virus itself per se, but it's us as humans that determine the reaction. But I guess on a bigger, wider scale, exactly what Holly said, we've kind of evolved out of the ecosystem in that we affect it. You know, I mean, we are evolving together in a huge scheme of things. And, you know, if you if you zoom out on time and you look at how the world evolves over thousands of years and the living creatures on it, it might be possible that our our concrete, our industrialized phase that we're in right now is a very small blip in the big scheme of evolution. And maybe in another 6,000 years, you know, we'll be back living with nature again and we're kind of moving in that direction with living houses and using oil for cars and you know that kind of thing but viruses quite rightly play a part in that evolution to a certain extent if we took a population in nature let's say population of mice and a virus came along and a certain subsection of that mouse population is susceptible to that virus in the same way that some people end up in hospital and some don't and then we would see those mice not survive that viral infection, then what you would have left is a population of mice that are immune to that virus. And then that virus is no longer a deadly virus in that population. Maybe it's, it gives them a cold every, every winter and the mice have a bit of a sniffle and then they, they move on to procreate. And that's part of what evolution is, is you know, different changes in the environment means that those animals that are best adapted to that environment survive to procreate. And then those traits live on. So again, an easier way of looking at that is if you have a population of, of mice and they're all sort of, you know, goldeny brown and they live in a field of corn, then if one mouse is born that's bright red, it's not going to hide in the field and the owls are going to see it and it's going to get eaten very quickly. So that's why you don't see a lot of red mice. There might've been a lot of red mice when they were in the poppy fields, but there's not a lot of red mice in the fields of corn as we know it. And that's because they don't blend in with the environment that they're living in. And then the gene for red fur gets killed in the population because they all get eaten by owls. Then in comes Bill Gates and creates a thing that allows red mice to also live. And that's how the vaccine works. <laughs> yeah yeah the, and then, the yeah. disco mice the disco mice yeah or humans come along and they build a patio next to the field and they paint the patio red and then suddenly all the red mice are like oh if we actually stay on the patio we don't get eaten by the owls and then they survive that way i mean that was a a better analogy than mine <laughs> to be fair to you bill gates did build the patio so 
He masterminded that. But the question is, why does Bill Gates want so many red mice? And if they're on that patio, then he's definitely using them to inject them with some kind of extra force field. Yeah. Only on the patio, though. Yeah. Only if you're on the patio. It's a force field patio. As a member of the Virology Avengers, I can confirm that that is a thing. <laughs> a lot of patio force fields out there. Realina is the Virology Avenger. I like it. Uh, so we actually didn't bring you on the podcast just because you're a virologist. You are probably these days better known as a comedian, aren't you? Up to the pandemic, yes. But now I'm going, I don't know. Uh, yes, that is my bread and butter now, is I'm a comedian. How did you end up going from virologist to comedian? Was there a aha moment or was it as it, oh, first of all and I know a lot of people just be like I can't believe she said that she's a scientist I'm a Gemini and I am such a Gemini <laughs> like I only believe it because everything I read about Gemini's they go yep that's me that's very me and then somebody's gonna write in and go hey but they've changed the calendar you're not actually a Gemini you're something else whatever I'm a Gemini and leave me alone um Gemini you know it's that split personality there's always been a part of me that loves the science and loves all that I fell in love with viruses weird phrase to say I get but I was a geek I fell love with viruses in high school when studying and I loved all of that they're incredibly interesting and incredibly powerful for what they are because they're not even technically alive they can't live on their own they can only live and procreate within hosts and they don't breathe they don't eat but they procreate and wreak as we can feel massive havoc on a worldwide scale so I found them very fascinating but at the same time I also always love to perform and when it came time to going to university, you know, I have an Asian mom and I said, mom, I want to go to drama school. She said, no way in hell. Think again. And I went, uh, I'd like to study biology because, you know, that's where viruses come in under. And she was a physicist and she went, God, what are you trying to do to me? You're breaking my heart here. But she let me go and I studied biology. I finished my undergrad degree, which was a pathology degree. It was actually a degree in pathology because that's really where viruses live is in that realm of biology. And I wasn't quite satisfied with it. I was only 19 when I finished. And I was like, I don't want to go get a job yet. So then I went and did a PhD and really focused in on, on viruses. But I did my PhD in London and at the same time started doing open mics. And that was sort of like my hobby or my, you know, my after thing. And by the time I'd finished the PhD, I had a choice between continuing in that career or continuing in comedy because by that point I was getting paid work. So I had a choice and it just was like, well, I could work 10 hours a day in a lab or I could work 20 minutes at night. And it just became a math, you know, equation. <laughs> Which is more fun. To be fair, there was a lot of satisfaction to be gained from working in science. I don't want to underplay that. When you're learning new things and then you write and publish a paper that says, I am the first person to ever discover this, which is what every science paper is, is essentially those authors going, we have just discovered something new about the world that was never known before. You know, that's, that's an incredible rush. And let's be honest, nobody's going to write the most original joke that's ever been written anymore. Or are they? Is that, is that how you bring science to comedy? Wow, we have just, well, here's a tangent we can go down. Let's go down this tangent road. Copywriting jokes is a hugely contentious. It's very hard to copyright a joke right now. And we have a lot of problems in the comedy community. For example, there's a lot of joke apps that you can pay 99p for and download it. And it might have a famous celebrity's name attached to it, like so-and-so's joke app. But if you go through it, a lot of those jokes have been actually written and authored. And, you know, when this happens, it'll go around in the community. They'll just go, did you see so-and-so's joke is in that app? Yeah, my joke's in that app. And then, you know, we know whose jokes they are. They've all been taken. 
deauthored and then sold for someone else's profit. And it's very difficult right now. We don't have a lot of protection in the law to copyright jokes. Now, obviously, if somebody does something word for word, you could argue, here's where I published it first. Here's my DVD that I released in 2012 with that joke on it. And now this person in 2021 is doing it on stage. I think we can prove who did it first. But if it isn't word for word, proving that that concept and that thought process was yours and that person didn't come up with it independently, it's almost nigh impossible to, to prove it. And, it. and it's really frustrating because you do know as a community who did come up with that concept and you can tell when jokes are being stolen and it's a very contentious issue. There's the same problem on Twitter, I think, with joke Twitter, a lot of people copying even word for word someone's joke. And I should say on the flip side that it is possible for two people to come up with similar jokes. And we see that a lot. I mean, how many times have we all heard people say, well, orange is the new black in reference to Trump replacing Obama? I mean, a million times and loads of people came up with that. And of course you came up because there is a certain logic to jokes. So it happens all the time that multiple brains come up with the same concept and then move towards the same area. So that's the other tricky thing with it. Some jokes are so good that you go, God, that's, that's that guy's and other jokes. You just go, Oh, that's everyone's. But yes, that happens on Twitter or Instagram all the time. I had one that went viral at the beginning of the pandemic. And for the most part, I, got the social credit for that in that they're retweeting my post, my original publishing of it. But also on Facebook, my page got stopped from, I think, monetizing or they put a flag on my page and I couldn't do certain functions on my page. And when we looked into it, they said, oh, it's because you've shared a common meme. And they stopped that on Facebook. They stopped pages sharing memes, but it was my meme. People took it, copied it. It was a tweet. They, some people even cropped it right down so that they took my name out of it and then shared it just as an idea, as a concept, instead of as an authored piece. And that's really frustrating. And there are people out there determined to not give you that credit. And also this, a lot of people don't realize that jokes yeah. have, have authorship and that, you know, that every time someone comes up to you after a gig and goes, Hey, I've got a joke for you. You can have that. And I go, no, I can't. It's not mine. Not sure it's yours either, but it's not mine. Um, they don't get that it's a very personalized art, especially because in music and other things, like even very famous artists can do a cover piece of someone else's work. And there's no problem with that. In fact, if anything, it's considered an honor if an artist that you, that you admire wants to copy your work. But in comedy, it doesn't work that way. In alternative comedy, I should say, the circuit that existed before we created what's called the alternative comedy circuit, even though it's quite mainstream now if you think of stand-up you think of the alternative circuit that's your mainstream but in the original mainstream circuit like working men's clubs and things like that a lot of people told the same jokes and in fact there is a circuit where they'll come up and go oh that's a great joke i'd love that and they start writing it down and you go no 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 no. this is not where we all go oh i love that i'll add that to my act this is my joke you don't write that down but that's the beauty of being filipino german is <laughs> that there's not a lot of my material that people, you know, as a virologist, nobody's like going, oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm going to add that to my Filipino-German virology set. Mm -hmm. Another argument for diversity is that nobody's copied your jokes yet. I think the thing is, unless it's, you know, Pharrell being taken to court for completely stealing a concept of a song, if you're doing a cover of a song, you go, hey everybody, 
I'm doing this cover, you know that that wasn't the original and that person is paid accordingly. Even if, you know, I didn't know when I was six years old that Uptown Girl wasn't by Westlife because I was six years old. But I, I know that now and the person who wrote the song got the money. The person who wrote the joke is not getting the money because Paul down the pub told it at an open mic night because there isn't like a PRS for jokes. I'm going to be honest. If Paul did Uptown Girl at uh, the karaoke night down the pub, Billy Joel wouldn't see a penny of that either. But it's true that there is no way of paying other people for their jokes. There is no way to say, okay, I'm going to do a Dave Chappelle joke now and don't worry, he's been paid for this for me to do it because it's Dave Chappelle's voice. But that's the other thing is if you write for a comic, you know, there's a lot of writing that goes on and you actually get paid to give up your ownership of the joke. That's part of what it is, is I've written these jokes, but for you to use them, you will pay me so that nobody knows that it's mine, which is also a strange reversal of, of the whole system. So you had uh, your own documentary on Channel 4 a while back. I um, did and I didn't, actually. That was an interesting one because it's interesting how it happened and it was really, it really shows you where the industry was to where the industry is now. Okay. Because yes, my name is on there. And it was a documentary about East Asian women in the UK. But the idea to do that documentary was pitched to the channel. And after they got the money, they came to me and said, hey, we kind of pitched you and got some money for you to do this documentary about East Asian women. So I wasn't involved in the original pitch. And as it turned out, working with it, so the director was a white woman. And I remember one of the producers, I think, was an Asian woman. But it very much became, it was actually one of the worst things I've ever worked on in wow. my professional career because they'd already decided the narrative. They'd already picked who they were going to interview. And the director, even when it came down to do the voiceovers at the end, where you sort of go, next, I went to see this person to find out about their life. You know, she'd written that entire script for me. By the time it got to the voiceover and we'd filmed everything and there were times where I had to pee and they wouldn't let me pee no, you can't pee. We can't do this. I'm like, I really need to look, we're in Chinatown. There's a million toilets I can go and borrow. And they're like, no, no, we got to get this done. Just awful experience. And then we got to the voiceovers and I pushed back on some of it and said, I'm not saying that. And she said, I don't see what the big problem is. It has your name on it. It says written by Rialina, but it isn't written by me. And then I, of course, had no say in the edit. The thing that really annoyed me about that is we, we interviewed a number of different people for the documentary, including, you know, a, a husband and his mail order bride that they had found and, and a couple of, of girls from North London that had been BBCs, British born Chinese. And we went out clubbing with them and they're like, yeah. And, you know, they were very much, yeah, we, we like to go get dressed up, don't we? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, we like to go out dancing, don't we? Yeah. So they're just London girls, but with Asian faces and looking at, we were looking at, to be fair to them, the difference between, you know, first generation, their parents who were quite strict and then how they blended in with the Western life of being teenage girls in London, which is a very diverse place to grow up. But we also interviewed a Chinese lawyer and she told us a story about how she came over at 11 and was actually sent to boarding school in Northern Ireland. And she came over not knowing any English, completely alone, how she was bullied in school 
how she learned the language, got her A-levels, went to university, became the first Chinese lawyer to, I think, own her own firm and specializes in immigration. And we actually interviewed her at an airfield because one of the things she always wanted to do was learn to fly. And she got to the point of success where she could afford these flying lessons. And so we, we you know, she went and did the lesson and we filmed her flying about and then we did the interview. And in the final documentary, they cut her completely, but they kept the girls in. So they kept in the girls and the whole interview with them is me sitting there watching them put their makeup on and their little tubey dresses. And then we all smushed into a black cab and went down to some nightclub that they got permission to film in. But because we were there at seven so that we could film, so it was completely empty. Oh, it looked weird. Anyway, that stayed in. But the success story of this woman who didn't speak English at 11 to having her own law firm, that got cut. I was furious. So it wasn't in any way my documentary or my voice. And, and I think the whole story exemplified where things were like that. that I was as used. I mean, so it's not the documentary that said, what is the view of East Asian women? It was the process and the experience that said that at the time, a white company went, ooh, let's use that girl for diversity, got the money, then got me on board and then used me completely to tell the story as they saw it. Because it wasn't from my perspective and it wasn't the truth of where East Asian women can be. So we had the mail order bride in there. We had the girls being dare I say, a little bit chavvy. And, that, and that's not probably fair to them. We didn't look at them at school. We didn't look at what their hopes and ambitions were. We portrayed them as chavvy girls going out for a night of dancing. And that's not really the truth of East Asian women. So that's, that's what that documentary was. But if I could do it again now, it would be a very different documentary. Yowza. Yeah, that was quite a story which I don't think either of us were expecting. It was very much about perpetuating the idea that these particular, I'm going to say it, white people had about us. This is the problem with, you know, any kind of diversity. If it's just there as a tokenism, then really you're just telling the story of what white people see. And we're just using our own views as much as we would have done if there wasn't an Asian person, you know, saying the lines. It, it drives me mad. Completely missing the point. If you have a director who's white and a writer who is also white, you're not well, giving a voice, are you? Well, I think it's an interesting question because, you know, this podcast, I think, is very interesting because you're both white doing, yeah. you know, podcasts called Diversify. So I was actually keen to ask you what your motivations were for, for doing this. Well, Holly originally was just getting very, very frustrated with the industry she was in and the conversations she was having. And we thought having conversations at a pub, me and her getting annoyed about things and... With Paul and Phil. With Paul and Phil. That's not mm. really doing a huge amount of good, but what can we do? Right. We can use a platform, very small platform that we have, but we can use it to mm. allow other people to share their stories in a safe space because you don't always want to have those conversations but if you choose to come and have a chat with us then you're I hope in a safe space to have these conversations and feel like it's your your story and your space yeah no and, and it's great it is important that those conversations happen because ironically I think this is the problem is that where we're aiming to get to is almost back to zero where none of it matters again. You want to get to a point yeah. where it is all irrelevant and we don't have to have labels and we don't have to have quotas and it just works for what it is. But in order to get there, 
you have to do these things like these spotlights and like these focuses and then be people question it you know oh is it appropriate for two white girls to have a podcast called diversify well yeah of course it is if, if their aim is to to learn and have a conversation and provide a platform i don't see why not it's because what we're doing we're, we're either having a conversation that we you know you you might sit in a room with people who are like you and you'll all have the same thoughts and that you won't have to kind of explain mm. anything but really you're preaching to the converted We've had a lot of um, white middle-class men contact us and say, oh, I really feel like I'm allowed to be part of this conversation now and I'm learning a lot. And we're like, oh, great. And by allowed to be part of this conversation, it means they're listening because yeah. <laughs> they can't reply. <laughs> Ria, I've got a lot of anger. <laughs> I've got a lot of anger. I found myself just being like so angry that I couldn't talk about stuff yeah. and just like didn't know who to talk to and how to get the conversation out. And I also believe that as white people, uh, and this is the race side of it, as white people, well, we're the ones who can quote unquote end racism. It's not down to other people to stop us being racist. Same with being queer. Like it's not me who needs to end homophobia. It's straight people who need to end homophobia. And me and Kate are both white, both middle class. We were like, okay, how can we get people to tell their own story without it being kind of like what you were saying, without me being like, no, you can't pee now. No, here's the script. No, here's that. It's like, no, I'm just really sick of people like me and Kate. Um, usually the male versions owning the narrative. Because it is, it is like, unfortunately, by being two women, we're automatically in the minority in, in the industry anyway. Already, also, yeah, well, this is it, yeah. The only reason that Holly and I are in a position where we kind of understand oppression to a certain extent, but we also understand privilege. The only reason that we're at this position is because someone else has been kind enough to take the time to be like, I don't think you've thought this all through. Have you considered this from a different perspective? And that takes a lot of energy. And someone's been kind enough at whatever point, because otherwise, if you don't know that there's something wrong, then you're never going to know that you need to correct it and educate yourself. So we're just contributing like 2%. Actually, it's even less than that. <laughs> I love the idea that this one small podcast could create 2% less racism in the entire world. I think as well, it's that thing, it's about emotional energy, isn't it? You know that when you're coming in here, you're willing to expel that emotional energy because you're coming on a podcast to talk about it. But it shouldn't be every your job all the time. And the hope is that next time somebody's like asking, quote unquote, the stupid questions, I can just point them to this episode and go, listen to this. Um, yeah, a uh, <laughs> lot of rage, Ria, a lot of rage me again now we had to pause for a minute or two while we sorted out a new zoom link and during that time we started chatting about something that was slightly deviating from what we were originally going to talk about but we found it so interesting that we decided to go down that route anyway we started chatting about the recent race report but somehow managed to come to the conclusion that Britain is not institutionally racist, which of course is a bonkers. But Rhea found it interesting that there have not been similar reports into other types of oppression, in particular the LGBT community, and that sparked such an interesting discussion about not just homophobia from the straight community, but the tensions that exist within the LGBTQ community itself. So we ran with it and I think it's so interesting and I hope you enjoy. So here we go. We'll talk about in, there is no institutional racism because we haven't done that kind of report on, on LGBTQI stuff. 
you know, and I think that's still very institutionalized because of religion. I think we're in a very interesting time where we're trying to kind of like unlearn things, but you sort you can't unlearn something if it's still the bedrock. And I don't know how you can root that out when there are still so many people who espouse the ideology that you're trying to unlearn. And, and I'm absolutely, I've got plenty of very like unhomophobic Christian and Muslim friends and everything. It's not that, but just I think it's the same with sexism, isn't it? I don't know how we're going to unlearn it until we like fully uproot it. And I don't know how we're going to uproot it if we're not acknowledging it. It's going to take generations. You know, my children already are far more left than I am. And I'm more left than my husband is, who's in the generation before us as well. And so it's just about, it takes time. It's just going to take time. I don't think I know of anybody who would not watch a show because there's a gay person in it, where that would have been the case even 20 years ago. And the same thing with race as well. I mean, you know, Kirk and, and Uhura famously having that first interracial kiss on television and where we've come. Now we, we have much better representation. It's not perfect though. But we're also haven't come as far as we'd like to. We're further than we've been, but I think it might not be in our lifetime that we get to that Star Trek utopia. That starts in primary school. It depends. I mean, they went to a great primary school. I really liked it. Uh, you know, it was one of those no school uniform, first name basis for the teachers type thing. Because you know, that's the kind of hippie I am. They were very much engaged in the in the conversation. So that head teacher would do assemblies on what was happening in the political sphere. So she did assemblies on Brexit, and she did assemblies on you know they did a lot of work on climate change the other thing is that you need to address those things with children when they are at that age it needs to be embedded at that point not when they're teenagers and and yes we've met plenty of adults that have seen the light and changed their minds about things and and moved away from their programming their childhood programming of course it happens but there's many who don't and that's why you want to bring it in at primary and it actually exists in primary school all of the negatives that we're talking about also exist in primary school in ways that we don't fully appreciate my daughter got in trouble for hitting a boy she just joined the school she was 10 years old she had I, th I think not quite been diagnosed with autism at that point, but she is autistic. But anyway, so she joined this new school after we'd homeschooled her for a year and we got pulled in and the, you know, the head teacher was, was trying to be very fair and saying, look, we don't condone violence. It doesn't matter whether you're a, a male or a female. She was trying to bring a modern approach to that. It doesn't matter if they're male or female, hitting is not okay. And I said, why did my daughter hit the boy? And she said, well, apparently he tried to give her a hug. And I said, I see. So we do condone non-consensual touching. Is that it? If they were adults and he as an adult tried to give her a hug as an adult female, he could be done for assault. That is inappropriate touching. And yet you haven't called his parents in. You've called us in because she defended herself. That's the next step of thinking that isn't happening. It's like, oh, but they're just kids. He was just trying to give her a hug. And I said, that's not the point. It's not that, oh, what sexual assault is okay when they're under a certain age because we don't associate sex with kids. No, that's where that behavior needs to be taught about consent and about permissions and about boundaries and about who is it all right to touch. And it probably wasn't as simple as just, hey, I really like you. I'd like to give you a hug in an innocent way. They were 10 and 11 years old. This was very much about, come on, I'll look after you swinging his arm around her and that's that's what it was and, and that's why she punched him because it wasn't as simple as just an innocent hug it was a kid trying to assert himself as dominant in the playground by going stick with me and you'll be all right and she was all right because she punched him in the balls <laughs> <laughs> that's such a good story boys will be boys no that's where we have to start unpackaging things 
And when we're kids, like, girls figure out from a young age that you ask consent about things. It's not an inherent male, female, boys are different. It's the fact that we treat them differently and we allow them to get away with it and we say it's innocent. But at a certain point, it will stop being innocent because they should know better. Well, that just came out in the news recently, didn't it, is all the sexual assaults that are happening at public schools. I heard an interview on talk radio of an ex, uh, he's an ex-headmaster, and he's actually got a campaign going. He's working to resegregate the sexes. He's going, if these girls don't want to be assaulted at public school, they shouldn't join them at A-levels. No, the boys need to be taught not to assault. Not that the girls shouldn't go to the school because that predatory behavior, if it's allowed to continue unabated at secondary school, will only exacerbate into adulthood. That's shocking that he, he's trying to make a campaign out of that because it's, it's mm. as reductive as the uh, don't wear a short skirt if you don't want to get attacked argument. This whole thing, this is exactly what we were talking about, about why we're doing this podcast and why like two white people or two straight people might want to do something. We call it like a woman's issue. We call like rape and sexual assault and assault at the hands of men a women's issue. It's a man's issue. We call racism a non-white people's issue. Racism is a white people's issue. We call homophobia an LGBTQ issue. It's not, it's a straight person's issue. It's the perpetrator's issue. Yes, it's the perpetrator's issue, I think, because to be fair, I know, and I know we're simplifying for the sake of making the point, but racism isn't just a white person's issue. Uh, you know, there's racism between races, um, even within, I mean, I'm constantly amazed and horrified by how much animosity exists between the L's, the B's, the T's, the Q's, the I's, you know, just within the community, when I would have thought as a straight outsider, I would have thought they all would have banded together in solidarity against the major population of straight people, you know, saying what they're saying. What, why, what, how is that helpful? Why are you doing it to each other? Stop it. Yeah, you're completely right. Um, I'm a lesbian, but I've dated a lot of bisexual women often while they're still dating a man. <laughs> but the less said about that, the better. Um, but there is a huge problem with biphobia in the LGBT community. Which I can't get my head around. I don't understand why that's such a threat. I mean, I'm open to learning about it, but explain to me why, like if I, I'm straight, I'm totally straight. If the guy that I'm with also likes black women, I don't understand why I'd be threatened by that if he's with me right now. And in fact, as an Asian woman, most of the men I've dated have been with other races as an example, but I don't sit there going, I feel threatened by other races now because maybe it's an insecurity thing. I don't get it. I just don't get why it matters. So I agree. Uh, there's a big conversation like uh, going on in a queer female and non-binary group I'm in. The problem that's going on at the moment is there's a lot of biphobia and they won't admit it's biphobic. And it's the same as racism where it's worse to call somebody racist than to actually be a racist in 2021. But a big part of it comes from... So there's obviously the tropes of like the slutty bisexual and can't make up the mind and that's the thing that the media's done. But there's also just the reality that in a homophobic past, if you could fall in love with a man, it was a lot safer to quote unquote choose the man. Mm. And and also there's the association where a lot of lesbians have had their heart broken by straight girls, quote unquote, who maybe you like fell for them but then weren't quite ready. And and then that gets associated with bisexuality as well. So you're right, there is like this fear and it comes from uh, decades and generations of hurt. And then I also think there's a status thing. Gay men are at the top. There's a lot of misogyny and racism in gay male culture. 
so the gay women are kind of like under the gay men and you want to keep your status and wow. it's all about pushing people down the sorry i need i keep calling it the wrong thing it's the l gb foundation which is an anti-trans hate group who are trying to distance lesbians gays and bisexuals from trans people by saying they shouldn't be part of our community and they're also homophobic but they've just been given charitable status sorry lgb are homophobic well that's the big question i think they're homophobic because a lot of people who support them are actually just homophobes it's basically just a hidden thing for homophobia. Isn't the L, the G and the B lesbians, gays and bi? Yeah, anti-trans hate group, but also really are funded by a lot of homophobic hate groups as well. But they've just been given charitable status. I think it's a big lie, basically. And trans people at the moment are the easiest group to malign and it's very fashionable to be transphobic and pretend that you're just quote-unquote concerned. Um, and so that's where all the politics from within the LGBT community comes from, where it's all... when It's like um, white women voted for Trump. They chose their whiteness over their womanhood because that's where their privilege could come. There's a lot of that in the LGBT community, in my opinion, where you side with your privilege... Well, at least I'm not getting uh, abused as much as these guys. Does that make sense? Like the opposite of the Prussian Olympics. Yeah, yeah. You said so much there. I think going back, the first point that, that really stuck out for me was when you said, I, I don't date bi people, it's a preference, which is interesting because, because sexual preference and, and what you prefer, like, for example, I've never dated non-white men. Does that make me racist if I never in my life find or date a black man and it's different to bisexuality i get that because bisexuality is, it isn't something you look at it isn't like they wear it in a particular way and you go oh i just don't find you know like if they you know i don't i just don't like three pierced ears attractive it's not the same thing i get that that's not but sexual preference is a very interesting conversation because there's a line at some point where you're right it, it isn't a preference it's a phobia and, and, and where does that fall but it's tricky when it comes down to one person saying this is my preference because we're fighting so hard for individual rights to be able to say that and then to turn around and go ah you can have your preference except when you say it that way but i think there's a difference between um i happen to have in my limited life experience in the life that i've lived in the places where i've lived where i've only ever dated white men white women and and that's how it is and that appears to be my preference based on my life history rather than i would never date a black man because he's black there's an argument to be made i've heard this argument before at least that in the wild we're trying to heighten our power and status by the mate that we choose and there's an argument to be made that there's some sort of some subconscious thing going on there we like my kids will have an easier time if they're white and men but I'm not entirely, I, I don't really think I've considered that argument enough to, to have anything more to say on that. But what do you think of that? Um, as a subconscious thing? I mean, I know, I, see, see, it's funny. For me personally, I used to watch Sesame Street and Gordon on Sesame Street was my favorite character. He's, he's black man and we also had the same birthday. Ah. That was probably helped, probably helped. But <laughs> he was, so I saw him very much as a father figure. And I realized growing up that that did affect how I personally view black men and that I don't feel fear 
with black men the way that I've noticed that there was this idea of, oh, if it's a group of black people, I should be worried. I've never done that because some of my first experiences was Gordon and just going, oh my God, he's like a dad. And he's like my dad. I wish, you know, I wish he was my uncle. I wish, you know, I wish I could go and live on Sesame Street with Gordon. I loved him. (laughs) And I felt that the whole way through my life, but I've never come across yet. Let's say, yeah, I mean, I'm married, but uh, yeah, let's say (laughs) I'm already married to a white guy, but I've never come across uh, a black man that I've found attractive yet is what I would say. Cause you can't really, as you say, never say never. I've never come across a woman yet that I think I would be attracted to because, you know, and, and I think it's okay right now in society to say I am straight. And if I say I am straight, I'm essentially saying I don't and never will date or be sexual with a woman. That's what that statement is isn't it fundamentally and and we accept that the same way that you know holly you've you've identified that you are a lesbian which suggests the same thing but with men and there are certain bounds that it's okay to say that but if we say other things like if i said i will never date a black man the way that some people say i will never date a bisexual uh that's not okay to say they're they're actually this two sides of the same coin i i personally think that If you're like, I will never find a black man attractive, it just won't happen, I just don't find... uh, And then you, like, start listing all the particular um, things about what a black man is, then really you're just, like, listing a bunch of stereotypes, and I would say that that is racist. Same with, I would never date a bisexual. And obviously we say it's different, because you could think they were a lesbian, you could date them for two months, and then the moment you find out that they're actually bisexual, all of a sudden it turns you off, and it's like the definition of biphobic you can't not know that an asian person is asian or a black person is black um unless obviously they're well passing's a whole other kettle of fish but um i personally i have found men attractive in my past there have been men that i have definitely kind of like dated because at the time i wasn't ready to figure it out luke cage (sighs) well i was gonna say i see your I raise you the guy from Bridgerton. Oh God, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, no, yeah, Fuck hands me. down. No, no, I mean, just to, just to clarify, let's not cut this bit out. There are plenty <laughs> of black men that I'd be like, yep, yep, just my, here's my hotel card. Yep, let's go. <laughs> but I think that's the thing as well. I do agree with you. We have to be honest about the fact that we live the lives that we lead. Like I have been historically monogamous. Do I believe that humans are inherently monogamous? No, but I've grown up in this period of time where monogamy is the norm and that's just like the world that I live in. I have grown up in a mostly white country, in mostly white Kent, and now I'm not. I live in East London, it's the opposite, but certainly all of my quote-unquote proper long-term relationships have been with uh, white women and I've had very few like sexual contacts with non-white people because either they didn't fancy me back or I was in a white place. But that's not the same thing as, you know, what we were saying about I would never yeah. have a long-term relationship with a black woman. It just so happens that my girlfriend is so pale, she's practically see-through. And that's your thing, is it? You like you like a bit of a jellyfish? <laughs> kinky, kinky woman. She's with a Scot. Ah, okay. A Scot with Irish blood. Oof. Oh, that is pale. That is pale. <laughs> no, I, it's inter- It's just these are the kinds of semantics of language and thought that really fascinate me and really interest me. There's always that yet qualifier, really, if we're going to be as politically correct as, as in the direction that we want to move in, then really there is no preference. There is just who you've been with to date. Or you, your, your type, whatever your type, your type currently is. is. Yeah. 
Yeah. And that can change as well as you evolve mm. over time. Your type can change and who you thought you wanted in your 20s might not be who you want in your 50s or who you want to settle down with, you know, into your dotage, as they call it. I think the other thing that was really interesting to me that we were talking about there, if I can take it on that tangent, again, and, and exactly in this forum, because who am I? I am a straight woman that has no right to have any opinion. And I don't have opinions on LGBTQ trans issues because it's not my place to have an opinion. Um, but I'm very interested in the conversation because there's so much that I don't know, which is why I can't have an opinion. I don't know enough, but this separating of LGB from trans and, and is it actually, and I, and I say this from the outside as someone on the side of, we need to do better. Is it right anyway, that all of these uh, different types of people are being lumped together in our brains into one category a little bit like we're talking now why do we have this term bane that we're already moving away from which lumps every single ethnicity into one group away from white bane is everything it's black it's asian it's minority ethnic it's all of us in one group when we're actually vast and varied and why do we do the same thing to lgbtqi plus why are they all lumped together because trans issues are about identity for themselves it's not about sexual preference but lgb is about sexual preference and i'm not saying i in any way side with with any kind of phobia on the lgb side i'm just saying is it fair generally already that we've, instead of looking at each group individually and their issues, have lumped them together and gone, oh, you're all a bit, quote, queer. We're sticking you with a bunch of acronyms in one big group and dealing with you as a whole. The argument that we've made on this podcast a few times, which is we have to get away from the idea that white and straight is the basis of everything. Which, right. Because the idea that myself and Holly as, as white people are the canvas, well, it's not even that, it's white men are the canvas and everything else is other, everything else is different. And there's different kinds of other, but we can't really be bothered to acknowledge their differences. So we're just going to put you all into one big clump of other, um, mm. which is not helpful. So I agree that it's all like white men are the canvas and everything that isn't a straight white man is like the exception to this big white male rule. I, and I agree that it shouldn't be that we're all lumped together separately from like straight people or that BAME. Again, it's all just a bunch of acronyms. Um, I'm writing a, I say I'm writing a play, I've been writing it for about five years. Uh, about the LGBT community and the tagline is basically we're all just adding letters and hoping for the best. Um, <laughs> great. At the same time, I think it's important that we stick together as the LGBTQI community because we are stronger together and it's kind of like when women started banding together and saying, you know that we have money too or gay people went, there's quite a lot of rich gay people. All of a sudden, advertisers went, oh shit, we should probably stop being quite so homophobic. And also the LGBT community owes its entire set of rights that it currently sort of has on trans inclusion that we don't know exactly, but we're pretty sure that uh, trans people were the people that kind of like sparked Stonewall, were the original kind of brave people. Trans people have been at the forefront of our movements and it just... I think it's like a mixture between individualism and groupthink that are kind of eating us alive. Okay, so we've got a choice now. Um, I think this has been a great chat and I don't 
feel the need to ask you a lot of my boring questions. <laughs> so we've got 10 minutes left. We have a few questions that we do at the end. We might not be able to get through it in 10 minutes, but okay. we might. I mean, it's great to be able to chat like this because it just doesn't happen enough. Yeah. That, that this sort of conversation, and I've learned a lot even within it. And just to be able to turn these things over, we should be turning these things over in our mind periodically because, you know, some of this stuff is, I've thought about it before, but I haven't thought about it recently and it, and it needs to be turned over like soil. Yeah. I wanted to say earlier, I think now we're becoming a sort of, we're kind of going, well, if we don't have dogmatic rules to follow, what rules do we follow? And we're just questioning everything and it can be exhausting but i think it it needs to happen we need to pick it all apart as you say turn the soil over until we get to a point where we're like okay this makes a bit more sense everyone happy with this okay let's go <laughs> we'll have to have you on for next season and then we can just go back and see how much more or less racist sexist and homophobic the world is i'm more than happy to be that moral <laughs> kind of you know like the <laughs> thermometer until we until we can replace the roof we'll just come on every season and just go how close are we to our goal <laughs> um so we've got a, a list of questions that we ask every single guest that comes on so the first question is do you consider yourself to be an activist? No. No, I don't. I, I very much do not feel like I am representative of any group particularly enough to represent the whole. Um, and so that my role is to help perpetuate messages that I agree with and that I think are important to get out there, but not necessarily to, uh, it, yeah, it's just not my place. Um, and also I'm autistic and that would, that would kill me. It just would honestly kill me. Um, so I do my best to support in, you know, and I think that's important that movements have support as much as they have leaders. And I know my place. It's <laughs> a lot about sort of the difference between speaking out about things and putting your body on the line. Uh, and there is a difference and they're both necessary. Hmm. Um, so we also, we like to encourage the idea that as we spoke about earlier, we can all make mistakes. Okay. We're all learning at our own pace. And it's to be expected that we screw up. And we want to normalize that bit by being like, oh, I made a mistake and that's okay. And I learned from it. Is there anything you want to share with us? It could be big or small, funny, stupid, poignant, all of the above. Anytime you put your foot in it recently and learned something. You're right. That happens all the time. And I think hopefully, you know, that's something that most people would do on a daily basis is learn from things. I mean, I got told yesterday by my two closest friends, they said, do you want us to tell you when you've done something really autistic that hurt our feelings? Because we love you and we know you didn't mean it, but sometimes. And I went, yeah, I think so. And I said to them, I don't want to hurt either of you, but obviously I do let my guard down a little bit more with you because I know that it's just really hard to keep your, to keep your guard up or to keep your filters on when you're autistic all the time. It's exhausting. It's abs it's, it's like having that force field, you know, you have to put that force field on and everything filters through it and takes a lot of energy. We've got two more questions. One of them we did okay. not include because we like people to have a fresh mind when they answer right. it. It's our most important question that we ask anyone. It's serious. It's political. All right. I'm prepping myself. Okay. I'm ready. What's your favorite Disney movie? Well, I'm, this is tense. I have to Google. <laughs> I have to Google. I, I have to like, oh my gosh. We've never had a Googler before. This is perfect. We've never had someone take the question with the severity that we want people to take it with. And you just did. And I, I really appreciate that. 
I have an answer. I just need to confirm that it is Disney. This is the thing about this question. There are a lot of Disney movies that people don't realize are Disney. Yeah. So my favorite Disney movie is Mary Poppins. Ah! Yes, we haven't had Mary Poppins before. Oh, I love that. Why? Do you know what? Genuinely, I have all the books. T.L. Travers. Huh all the books and the books are magical now quite rightly just like from that movie that they made about the making of mary poppins the movie does not do the books justice that is quite right but the movie still captures a certain magic and it's julie andrews and julie andrews is just one of those people that you know every you know when certain people die you feel it you you've never met them but they've touched your life in some way and you just feel it and she will be she's one of those for me in fact when carrie fisher died i felt it you know one of those you just go julie andrews is one of those i'm like please live forever you need to live forever you need to live forever i feel the same way about julie andrews i think you can never be unhappy when you're watching julie andrews some people they have they have the lightness with them and some people don't and and sometimes you need to get the lightness from julie andrews (laughs) yes it's just beautiful I think there's just nothing you can fault it with. It has enough darkness in it that it's not a Disney movie, but it is. You know what mm. I mean? It's just a beautiful piece. So the final question that we ask is, the world is a bit shit. Right now, a bit shit. Lots of things. We've talked about lots of things that could be better, but we like to end the podcast on something a little bit brighter, just to sort of send us on our way for the rest of our day, feeling a little bit more positive. So we ask our guests for a little bit of sunshine. Anything you want to tell us that's just going to give us a little bit of pep <laughs> moving on? All right. This is rather a little bit off beaten path, but I'm going to do this. There is, uh, it's not vegan friendly. Hang on. Um, <laughs> hang on. I was going to introduce you to a wonderful cheese that's made by this little, uh, little dairy in Scotland. And I found it in a budgeons in Islington and it's called Minger. And it's ginger. It's a ginger minger. It's, it is genuine. It's one of those orange cheeses, you know, on the outside and it's creamy on the inside. And it's a wonderful, creamy, smelly cheese. And if you love that, then do go find it. It goes perfectly with any kind of carb on a picnic blanket in the sun. And so I just want, for those of you who don't know that that's out there, there is a ginger minger cheese and it's, it's as smelly as you would expect one to be. So I apologize if you are vegan. But, um, or Scottish, but for everybody who is, well, no, it is Scottish. That's the thing. This is a pro Scottish plug because it's a wonderful cheese. This so, sounds um, amazing. <laughs> I'm going right out there to buy my cheese of the month. I'll have to get it for my girlfriend. For the, for all the vegans out there, there's a really good vegan smoked applewood. It's fine. And, and with a car's biscuit, mm. my little bit of sunshine is that recently America the Senate passed an anti-Asian hate crime bill. I think it was yesterday. I would love a link to that. Pretty sure there was only one senator that voted against it. So I'm pretty sure it was like one of the most bipartisan bills in history. And the one who did vote against it is one of the insurrectionists. So (laughs) it was Josh Hawley who voted against it. Oh, he has got egg noodle on his face now. Oh my goodness. (laughs) And it ain't vegan. So plugs, 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 plugs. Kate, you please take it away. Do my plug song. Do it. I can't remember how it goes. Plugs, 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 plugs. Wait, no, that's... My favourite part of this, Rhea, is that she thought that there was a tune to it. It's usually just me going, plugs, 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 plugs. Where can we find you online, Rhea? Oh, I am such a social whore. So 
all of them. I'm on the Twitter. I'm on the Instagram. I'm on the TikTok, and I'm on the Facebook, and I'm on the LinkedIn. For those of you, oh my goodness, yeah, I know that rise to that level. I'm on the LinkedIn. Basically, what I I go to all of them, so you don't have to. So you pick your social of choice. You type in Rialina, and I will be there. <laughs> now, on some of them, you type in Rialina, and you'll see multiple Asian faces, all called Rialina. I'm the comedian. Not, not the Indonesian housewife because there's a few of them on some of them. I was really surprised because here's the irony of it. Ria is a very Dutch name. It's an old Dutch name. It's like the equivalent of Ethel, right? Nobody's, yeah. you know, nobody's called Ria under the age of 65 in, in Holland. And Lena is a Scandinavian name or Germ it's a very Germanic but Scandinavian name, uh, Swedish name, uh, especially with that spelling. And my father's German. And so that's why my sister and I have very white European names but apparently if you put them together as i did for my stage name Rialina, you end up with an indonesian name which is exactly what my face looks like so i was very surprised when social media came along and i typed in my thing and went i'm gonna own this nobody else besides this and they're all got, like it's gone across all platforms i cannot be just wow. Rialina on any platform because some other buggers got in there first well you're the one with the blue tick and on instagram and twitter as someone who's just followed you on both you are R-I-A-L-I-N-A -A with an underscore after. I know. Pesky little underscore. But I got the blue tick. You're right. I'm ticked on all of them. So, oh, I'm not ticked on LinkedIn. They don't do that on LinkedIn. They're too and highbrow on LinkedIn. I know. I know. We are Diversify Podcast. We are on Instagram and Twitter. Go on. I can't remember which way around it goes we're diversify pod on twitter and diversify podcast on instagram kate is on twitter as kate lois elliott two l's two t's and on instagram as <laughs> kate lois elliott two l's two t's thank yeah. you so much Rhea. It's, it's been so great talking to you you're super cool and oh thanks for having me um i hope that uh, that was incredibly tangential from the questions that you said <laughs> so that's okay they're just there in case we don't vibe and have nothing to talk about but it's much nicer when we go off on tangents because we end up places we didn't expect to go i forgot that i'm competing with other comedians that pre-plan all their jokes and then they have a <laughs> funny episode my episode wasn't very funny i think it was really funny was it okay yeah, just edit out all the shit and just keep in the funny <laughs> Plug, 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 do me a plug, plug my plug, Ooh. plug my plug. Do you plug me? This just got a little bit <laughs> X-rated.